0: It's the first Monday of the month, and we are responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 439.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential.
0: Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. An important part of our ongoing conversation on the show is involving you and hearing from you on what you're thinking about that uh, we can jump in and maybe help with a a few new ideas. Once a month, we open up the show to respond to your questions here the first Monday of every month. And if you would like to submit your question for consideration for a future episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. I am joined this month, as I am almost always, by Bonnie stahoviak Welcome back, Bonnie. Thanks, Dave. All right. So we've got a bunch of questions here to tackle this month. Let's dive right in and see if we can help out David. David wrote in and said, I have generally managed one to two people so far in my career, but I'm about to succeed my boss and move up to managing five people. My boss has been at this organization for 20 years and has an enormous amount of institutional knowledge. Two questions for you. First of all, everyone knows I'm going to be taking over for my boss soon. How do I communicate my personal management style and expectations? And do I do it as a group or one-on-one? And then secondly, how do I focus my efforts between my current job, getting to know my new direct reports, and absorbing as much institutional knowledge as possible from my boss before he leaves? Bonnie, what do you think?
1: Oh my goodness. My mind is jumbled in all sorts of directions now because you're really about to take on a huge challenge. So thanks to you for writing in. One of the things that struck me in reading your question, came at the very end, and that had to do with absorbing as much institutional knowledge as possible from your boss before he leaves. And you mentioned that he's been with your organization for 20 years. Yes, of course, you're going to get valuable information from him. Yes, of course, this is one of those situations that absolutely needs to be a yes and. But one of the things I would be careful of is to not over inflate the importance of his organizational experience in context with also the other things that you need to be doing. Yes, if we've been at a place for a long time, we have valuable institutional knowledge. But for example, how much would his experience from 15 to 20 years ago help you in terms of fighting today's challenges? I suspect not as much as you might initially think. So I'm glad that you're asking the question around how to balance these things. And I suspect that this will really fluctuate depending on the day and depending on the week. So one of the practices I think might be helpful to you is to really check in with yourself once a day to what are the three most important things that you'll be focused on for that day and to not allow any of the sense of urgency of things that may come up to get in your way. Another practice, and this is outlined in the book Getting Things Done by David Allen, is to have a weekly review and have that be a consistent practice that you're doing to be able to lift yourself above the day-to-day and to be able to say, what happened in the last week that may be some open loops I need to attend to? What's coming up this coming week I need to be prepared for? And what you also talked about this challenge between how do you communicate your personal management style and your expectations? Do you do that as a group or one-on-one? And my answer is both and. You absolutely should be regularly articulating your values and having that cascade across everyone. There are things that are helpful for us to say in a group context. And then as we dive into talking more one-on-one, we should be looking at that individual's strengths and getting to know those really well and how they can fit in with the organization. My job recently changed at my organization. And so I'm working with people who are somewhat new to me. And one of the things I asked, I did not require it. I made sure I emphasized it was an option, but was for people to take what is now called the Clifton Strengths Instrument, but used to be when I took it Strengths Finder. So I still always call it that, but to have them either take that instrument if they never had before, or share their results if they're comfortable doing so. That's going to be really important for me to be aware of. And then also for me to be thinking about my own strengths and where they fit in. And the last thing that I'll leave you with is just the idea of transparency. I think it's so essential that we're transparent and we don't try to, as an example, try to think that we know as much as this individual who's been around for 20 years that, you know, try, try to get into sort of this competitive spirit or, or not admit that we're not going to know all the answers and not admit that we are going to at times be faced with challenges due to our own lack of knowledge. But at the same time, you just don't want to overshare that too much. You want to be telling stories that help inspire hope, inspire a vision and also admit that, I mean, one of one of the areas that I recently now I'm overseeing, I mean, I'm not going to go to the people who work there and be like, yep, I know exactly what I'm doing. Here's what needs to get fixed. That's not at all the way that would be helpful for me to come in and work with those individuals. But at the same time, I don't need to express to them with any sort of regularity that I'm somehow insecure about this, that I know that I bring a lot to the table And it would not be helpful if I were to remark about any insecurities I did or didn't have. So definitely be transparent, but be transparent in terms of sharing a vision. Be transparent in terms of sharing those values that you hold and work to have the venting about any insecurities you might feel or frustrations about the new people you'll be overseeing in a context that won't involve the people that you are going to be leading. But thank you so much for writing in. I'm looking forward to hearing Dave's advice
0: too. I think it's mostly going to reinforce what you've said and maybe a few other areas. I, When I was reading your question, David, one of the things I was wondering as far as timing, is this six days from now, six weeks from now, or six months from now that this transition is happening? Because that would change my advice slightly on this. But I do have the leading thought of how much can you jump into the new role now And stop doing the things you were doing before, start to have other people do the things you're not going to be doing anymore as you step into this new role to the extent that that's possible. And I think a wonderful way to make a transition, if the time allows and if it's possible and the resources are there, to jump in and start doing the role. And if your boss who you're replacing is open to it, that you step in and start running the staff meetings and that he's still there. And he's there to answer questions, but you jump in and start doing that, that you sit in on performance conversations that are happening, that when there's strategic thinking happening, that if you're not already involved in those meetings, maybe not only are you there at those meetings, maybe you're even starting to run the meeting. And then have the person that you're going to be replacing be the person that's there as the coach. And there to ask questions of and to be able to tap into that institutional knowledge when it's helpful and all that wisdom from over the years of how to handle certain situations. I say this knowing it is not always possible to do this for a whole bunch of reasons, but I think that's the ideal situation, that if you can be very present in moving into that role and have the person who's leaving be very present in helping as a coach— That's ideal because as you start to take on things and run staff meetings and handle performance conversations, stuff's going to come up that you're going to go, ah, I wonder what happened with this in the past. I wonder how we made decisions. And then that's the point where you go to your boss and say, hey, how did you parse this in the past? When this person has had this issue come up (laughs) in the last three quarters, what did you do? Not that you're necessarily going to do the same thing after that person departs. But the context is really helpful to save you some time in the long run of knowing what's next. The other piece that you asked about is how do I communicate my personal management style and expectations? And one useful exercise that I think has been helpful to a lot of folks over the years is writing a bit of a leadership manual. And I know leaders who have done this, and they have shared it with others. I also know people who have done it, and they've shared it with nobody, but they've taken the time to write down, to Bonnie's point, like, what are the key things? You can do that for yourself and just decide, here are the two or three or four ways that I really want to show up as a leader. Here are some of my core expectations for myself. And maybe you share that and maybe you don't, or, you know, you just use it contextually in conversations. Doing that thinking for yourself as a leader, I think is really a great place to start because then you go into those conversations and those situations and new contexts with intention and with the values behind how you want to show up. And then the final thought I have, it comes from Chris Hatfield, who was on the show a number of years ago. He's the former uh, commander of the International Space Station. He when he was on the show, talked about his journey as an astronaut, and astronauts get moved around assignments all the time over the decades of their career. Mostly it's not in space. Mostly it's on the ground doing things, and they're six months one place and six months somewhere else. And he has this wonderful concept of being a zero, showing up and not trying to add a ton of value and not trying to take away and not assuming, but just showing up at first and asking questions and being present and watching and listening. And that's a wonderful place for you to begin of just going into those situations, especially with the direct reports that you haven't interacted with a lot in the past. If you show up with that attitude, if I'm not here to change things, I'm not here to solve problems yet, I'm just here to show up as a zero and learn and to understand and to, even if I don't agree with, see why some of the decisions have been made before. And then that's a wonderful foundation to begin from. So David, I hope there's a few things in there that'll be helpful to you on your first steps.
1: Our next question comes from Saeed. I am looking for something specifically around how to manage people who are, quote, better or smarter than you. How as a leader can I lead without feeling fearful or inferior while empowering A-list players to do their best? I have a team member who works for me who is wicked smart and I appreciate that. But how do I then be the best leader in my role without feeling fearful? Any thoughts on what podcast I should listen to that touches on this topic?
0: Yeah, the fear part is the key piece here, Saeed. Thanks for this question. I have felt this fear before with people who are smarter than I am, and also people who were older than I am and had more experience than I did. And For various reasons, I found myself in a a leadership role. So a few places to start. One is, as a leader, it's not your job to be the smartest person in the room. And in fact, it's probably easier if you're not the smartest person in the room. It's harder if you have a lot of experience and expertise to step in and to be the coach and to be the person asking the questions. I love the quote from Simon Sinek when he was on the show saying, leaders aren't responsible for... The numbers, leaders are responsible for the people responsible for the numbers. And that's a key distinction here in being able to, I think this has helped me to move beyond some of the fear in the past is uh, I'm not here to be the smartest person in the room. I'm not here to have the expertise in every particular area. My job is to be the coach, is to think about the strategy, the vision, where we're going to provide context, to ensure communication's happening well, to frame the culture well in the organization. If I'm doing that well as a leader, then I am getting out of people's way so they can do the work well, and then to hopefully provide an avenue to develop them. And so, side, where I would start with someone like this is, first of all, is to be really present. One of the lessons that has come out of the research that Gallup has done over the last few decades, and it was featured prominently in their book, First Break All the Rules, is the tendency for a lot of us as leaders to ignore or substantially spend less time with our best performers. Because we assume that if they're performing well and they're doing great, that we don't necessarily need to spend as much time with them. We should really spend our time helping the people who need the most help. And Gallup's research really challenged us on that and said, actually, when you look at the most effective, the best leaders out there, they're the ones that are investing the most time with their best people. And now we're hearing Gallup come back 20 years later with research that very much lines up with that and was recently featured on the show with Jim Harder, who said that people are looking for organizations and leaders who are going to develop them, who are going to support them, and they're seeking that, and they're craving that, and they're going to leave if they don't find that in their organizations. And so here's where I think your job is, Said, is to This person is asking questions, is providing opportunities, is to leaning into ways to look for what's next. How can you open doors for them? How can you ask questions that's going to challenge them to do new things? How can you spend even more time with them to provide the coaching and the resources and the context that will help that person even get better and better? Because that will not only help them to stay engaged with the work, but also is going to open up opportunities for you and them for the organization to do even more. And then the person who is coming up to mind for me that I think is just so was so brilliant at this in their work is David Marquet, the author of Turn the Ship Around, and he's got another book coming out, and he'll be back on the show soon. But he's so good at developing leaders, taking people with great technical expertise, and helping them to develop long term. I'll link to that episode later on here in the show. I think that that would be a wonderful place to start as a a leader to follow and be inspired by who I think does this in a really effective way.
1: I really enjoyed hearing the way that you wrote this question because you're being so transparent. One of the things I would challenge you on is really contemplating a little bit deeper, and you're starting to do that here with what does it mean to lead someone who is, quote, better? And you use the example of intelligence, and I think we have to be really careful with intelligence as leaders and not over-inflating the importance of intelligence. I think of like smarts being a little bit overrated. And I think back often to this formula I was introduced to when I was getting my master's degree about quality decisions. And quality decisions start with the quality of the decision itself but it's multiplied by the amount of buy-in or engagement that is present among those people who are being asked to implement that decision. It's so often where the smarts get overinflated in this calculation. We go, let's make a really smart decision but people just aren't bought into it. They don't think that's the way we should head, and then the quality of the decision gets significantly reduced. So be careful about overinflating intelligence. But I really still do think your challenge is definitely near and dear to my heart. And I often refer to these people as rock stars. And think about what is it like to lead a rock star—just someone who is so tremendously good at what it is they do. And this comes up often in managing salespeople, for example. You may or may not know this, but most sales managers make a heck of a lot less than their most successful sales producers, how do you do that? How do you still feel like you're adding value? And one of the approaches, this is not going to work in every case, but one of the approaches that may work for you is instead of thinking of yourself in terms of, I have to somehow, how do I figure out how to make this person even better? They're already so good and I'm not really good at what they do to the extent that they are either to think of yourself instead as a leader who can help to break down barriers for them many of our organizations are so complex i know for myself and this is just a, a personal example but you know asking me to fill out the form and then i got to walk it over here and then there's 12 steps I mean, that, that is just not using my strengths of course, I realize as I'm telling this story, I'm making myself sound like a rock star. Which, of course, Dave and I know that I am. But, but can someone yes, else? Can someone else go through all those hoops? Because I'm just—I'm going to miss a step along the way. I'm going to make a mistake on one of those forms. Can we break down the barriers for these rock stars so that they really can shine their greatest strengths? And so, there's speaking of strengths. There's two other things I'd really encourage you on, and it does relate to the last question too. You really need to know that these these rock stars strengths and the Finder slash the Clifton Strengths Instrument is a really helpful way to do that so that you can identify what is it about them that helps them excel so much, but also get to know your own strengths, too, because that's going to help you. Yes, we we should as leaders have a sense of humility, but also we know that we're contributing. And so what are the ways that are different that you're able to contribute to that can help assure yourself that you're really being a productive member and contributing? I guess the last thing I would just say is I'm so grateful for your self-awareness. Competitiveness to me is one of the character traits that really holds us back from things. I think people think so much it's about, you know, competitiveness when it comes to our competitors. And so often today, we're figuring out that when organizations figure out there's room for more than one of them in a marketplace, that there's actually some benefits to having good, healthy competitors uh, and, and maybe not even thinking of them in that way, we sort of lose some of our creativity. It becomes a win-lose. And I just think as leaders, when we can think more about win-win, we're really going to come up with some unique, distinct ideas for how to lead. Thanks so much for your question, Saeed. I'm interested in you checking back and letting us know how things are going.
0: Yeah, please do say it. I'd love to hear. Next question is from James. James wrote in and said, I hope one day to take on a more strategic role and have greater influence across more people. What would be your advice on prerequisites for that next step? What sort of experience and qualifications do you suggest that could prepare for that? What do you think,
1: Bonnie? I have two pieces of advice. One is to regularly get yourself in short-term situations where you can tackle problems with other people together and start to make suggestions and actually be a part of implementing those things. So that regular exposure, I was going to call it volunteering, but of course it's not volunteering (laughs) because it's your workplace. But taking those risks, showing initiative, I'm really interested in that. Can I sit on that committee or can I start engaging on this? But doing it collaboratively with other people, try not to make it about your own ego and your own efforts, but showing those leadership skills that show you can work with a group of people who have all different perspectives and all different strengths. The other thing I'd recommend is a book. It's the Business Model. I think Business Model Generation or something like that. Yeah, Business
0: Model Generation. That's it.
1: And that is just a really good model for thinking about the different components of a business. And I would suggest that you go through, there's a workbook that goes with it too. I'd suggest you go through that with your own business and see if you can't start having some conversations with some of the leaders in your organization. This will really help you be able to see how does the business generate revenue? What are some of the expenses? What are some of the partners in the industry? What does the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats? I mean, there's all kinds of different lenses that that book and the associated workbook will help you put on to really be able to speak that higher level vocabulary about how things affect other things in the business and, and how it ultimately proves to be successful or not. So that's just
0: a, a, a quick resource for you and some thoughts. James, I am guessing there is no shortage of problems in your organization, just like every other organization. And to Bonnie's point, go solve some problems. Solve a problem. Not because you want to build your personal brand around it, although if you do it well, that can happen, but because you really genuinely care and want the organization to do better on a particular issue that's happening right now. Because as you dive into that, you're going to learn a ton. You're going to learn a ton about strategy, what works. It's going to bring up a ton of problems and questions. It's going to require you to jump in and to influence without authority. And that experience of jumping in and the willingness to solve problems and to come out of it, either having solved a problem, which is great, or going into it and not, for whatever reason, solving the problem, you're going to learn a ton either way that you can then utilize to be more influential, And so if you come at it with the heart of how do I go and serve and help people and to make this organization a better place, I have just so rarely seen people go wrong with that. Even when it hasn't worked out, most every organization and leadership team that I've seen, when someone in the organization has a truly heartfelt desire to want to make things better and to try to solve a problem, even if they're not successful— more often than not, people are so grateful that someone stepped up and was able to really do that well. And that's where a lot of your learning is going to come. Mark Allen was on the show a few weeks ago, and we talked about that 70-20-10 model of how do you get better at learning? And 70% of it is experiential learning. 20% is coaching and and mentoring, and then there's 10% that's in the classroom. And that model feels really right to me from my own experience in my own development and also the people we work with of getting out there and actually doing stuff. And as you do that, it's going to open up a ton of doors, and it's also going to raise a ton of issues that will then get you to a point of like, oh, I don't know how to do this, or I don't know the the right model for this. And then that brings you to the right book, that brings you to the right podcast episode, that brings you to the right coach, whatever that's going to then answer that question specifically. A model for it, if you're looking for one now... I love the model from the folks at Franklin Covey. Chris McChesney was on the show talking about the four disciplines of execution a while back. If you want to solve a problem in an organization and move numbers, that's a wonderful model to start from. and It's a model that almost any leader in an organization can implement and focus on one thing. And If you do that and start moving numbers, that's going to do great things for the organization, but it's also going to do great things for you. Lots of resources to link up from today's conversation. I'm putting in two articles on how to write a leadership uh, manual for yourself, potentially to share with others that I've tracked down over the years. Those will be in the notes. In addition, a number of related episodes that may be helpful to you if you want to dive in further on a few of these topics. One of them is episode 59, Seven Principles for Leading People Older Than You, Bonnie and I on that episode talked in detail about how we've handled that situation over the years as leaders when we've taken over a team of people who were older than us, had a lot more experience, and how did we handle that? And that really goes to a bit of the heart of Saeed's question of when you are leading someone who perhaps intimidates you, he didn't use that word, but I'll use that word because that's happened to me before, how do you handle that fear as a leader? And we talked in episode 59 on some of the key strategies that Bonnie and I have both found over the years that have really worked for us not only on age, but also just on experience and knowledge. And how did we approach that from a leadership standpoint? Episode 59 would be helpful to you if that is a place you are in or looking for some direction there. Also, I'd recommend episode 149, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. I mentioned Chris Hatfield earlier, and he talks about a ton of his wisdom in that episode, not only on how to be a great employee and have a great career, but just so many of the practical things he learned as an astronaut in so many different leadership roles. Episode 149 is where to go for that. Bonnie mentioned the work of David Allen and the power of doing a weekly review. That was the topic of episode 180, Do This for a Productive Week. I talked in detail about the process I used at the time for a weekly review. It's changed some over the years, but the essence of it is still very much the same. And then David's question got me thinking about how to step into a new team. And create guidelines for that team. Episode 192 is used so often by folks in our academy community and has been helpful to so many. How to create team guidelines with Susan Gerke. There's a ton there in that conversation for you. If you're stepping into a situation where you're inheriting a team or maybe you're creating a team or part of the creation of a team for the first time, where do you start? Episode 192 is how to start there. And then uh, I mentioned Chris McChesney earlier, the four disciplines of execution. He was on episode 294 talking about how to actually move the numbers. If you want to move numbers, start seeing results like uh, I know James is thinking right now, episode 294 is a good place to start. Also helpful if you're starting the leadership of a new team, episode 349, the path to start leading a new team. John Pinero was my guest. He talked in detail about how he went through that process using a number of the models from the show. It's one of the, uh, I think it was the first Saturday cast we had. And John and I talked in detail about what worked for him and what was helpful as far as creating the foundation for a new team. And then finally, I mentioned also The work of David Marquet, Develop Leaders Before You Leave, episode 405. If you are interested in developing future leaders as a Saeed is, that's a wonderful place to start for some real practical tips on how to move forward. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. And the very best thing to do is to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. Com. When you do that, it's going to give you access to the entire library of episodes since 2011. More importantly, searchable by topic. So you can track down what's most important for you right now. In addition, that'll also give you access to my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday. And one of the things I include is references to the other episodes that I think will be helpful to you from whatever conversation happened each week watch for that in your inbox every Wednesday. You can get access just by setting up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. Plus, it opens the doors to tons more inside the website, libraries, resources. So I look forward to seeing you there. Have a fabulous week and see you back next Monday. Take care.